0: Welcome to The New Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia and beyond.
1: Hello and welcome to The New Arab Voice. It's Friday the 22nd of October. My name is Hugo Goodridge and I'll be your host today coming to you from London. This week, 10 years after the death of Muammar Gaddafi, we explore the future of Libya, prospects for elections, and the problem of foreign forces. That
2: Libya has a history, especially in these transitional periods, of what they call the status quo in Libya, trying to stall the next step of the transition. And that's for quite obvious reasons. People that that find themselves in executive power tend not to want to give that position
1: up. And then... New Arab voice producer Rosie McCabe takes us to a new exhibition in London called Stateless Heritage, which examines the architecture, social fabric and cultural heritage of one of the world's oldest refugee camps.
3: To me, it's, it's a very important part of the project because it's not about the refugee camp itself. The, refugee camp, the history of the refugee camp is deeply rooted in the history of the villages.
1: But first... At the end of September, Lebanon elected a new government, but any sort of honeymoon period was abruptly burst last week when Beirut was rocked by armed clashes. Joining us to discuss events in the Lebanese capital is the new Arabs correspondent in Beirut and friend of the podcast,
4: Will Christou.
1: Hi, Will. How are you?
4: Good, thanks. Uh, so tell us, Will, uh, what happened? What happened? So, in brief, uh, last Thursday, there was about four hours of armed clashes in Beirut. You had on one side Hezbollah and Amal, which are both Shia militias and political movements, and the Lebanese forces on the other, which is a Christian political party and a former militia. But, you know, how, how did it all start? So basically, last Thursday, October 14th, Hezbollah and the Amal movement organized a protest in front of the Palace of Justice in Beirut. And they were there to demonstrate against Judge Tarek Bitar, And he's the judge who's been leading the investigation into last year's port explosion, which killed 218 people and and wounded 6,500. And and now both Hezbollah and Amal allege that Bitar is politically biased and is supported by foreign powers. And by foreign powers, they mostly mean the U.S. So you had protesters chanting against the U.S. and burning pictures of the U.S. ambassador to Lebanon, all that sort of stuff. And and this went on for just about 10 minutes until shots were heard in the distance. And all of a sudden, protesters started rushing to a second location. Uh, and, and Hezbollah claimed that it was the Lebanese forces that shot first. But video footage released a few days later showed that it was actually a Lebanese army soldier who fired the first bullet. So what happened next? So immediately after the first shots ring out, there's this great exodus of men from the Palace of Justice. I, by chance, was you know wearing the exact same outfit they were all wearing, so I just jogged alongside them. And eventually we all arrived to the Amman areas, where fighters regrouped and then and they picked up their arms. And from here, the shooting quickly intensifies. I hear explosions and automatic gunfire, crowds of men armed with AK-47s and RPGs head to Tayune roundabout, which is right outside of the Bardo neighborhood in Beirut. And now Tayune is significant because it neatly divides the Shia and Christian neighborhoods and was actually an old buffer between the two during the civil war. So you have gunmen taking their positions and, and they're starting to fire at the other side. And, and notice Hugo that I say the other side because, you know, I was standing right there with them and it was impossible to see who they were shooting at. Someone was definitely returning fire, but it was unclear from where and not once did I actually see gunmen on the other side. You know, I, I actually asked the other fighters who they're shooting at. And I got conflicting answers. Lebanese forces, the army, and and one man actually told me they were just shooting at the walls. Still, the violence continued for about four hours. It was unorganized, it was chaotic, and it was deadly. I saw one woman's corpse carried on a stretcher after she was hit in the forehead by a stray bullet. I watched another man get shot in the stomach. And in the end, six were killed and 30 were wounded. Why did these clashes erupt? So it's hard to say exactly, but it's important to note that this this violence is the worst the country has seen in the last 10 years. And it comes after two years of a punishing economic crisis, which has thrust over two-thirds of the population into poverty. So in some ways, it felt a little bit like a bloodletting. And sometimes having a clear enemy is easier than dealing with something as nebulous as an economic crisis. And in this case, because Hezbollah was claiming Lebanese forces started the whole thing, it was a sectarian enemy. Which is even more compelling. Then, on the other hand, you know, like I said, there was no clear leadership, nor was there a strategy. It kind of felt like the violence had a momentum of its own. And I think, on some level, once you put a gun in a man's hands, there's no way he's going home without firing it.
1: How did the government and other political forces in the country respond to these clashes?
4: Yeah, so you know, the response from the government was pretty much boilerplate. Uh, Prime Minister Najib Makati urged calm and promised those responsible would be held accountable, and called for a day of mourning the next day. Where it gets interesting though, is when Hezbollah issues its response. Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, delivers his weekly speech on the Monday following the violence. And a lot of people were expecting a sort of de-escalatory message, but we got just the opposite. So basically, he, he blamed the Lebanese forces and says that there are some Christians working on behalf of foreign powers in Lebanon. And he, he says they're doing this in order to carve out their own fiefdom in the country, and that they're demonizing Hezbollah to consolidate their own power base. He then warns the Lebanese forces not to miscalculate, because Hezbollah has 100,000 fighters. A figure most think is exaggerated, but you know that's, that's what he's claiming. And then you have Samir Jaja, the head of the Lebanese forces, issue a similarly sectarian response. Jaja said that his party is the only party capable of confronting Hezbollah. So essentially, you have this escalatory sectarian rhetoric following the clashes. And this is the classic Lebanese political playbook. When the going gets tough, appeal to baser instincts. And the fear that another sect is coming to get you is a powerful one.
1: And what does all this mean for the port investigation?
4: So the violence didn't actually produce any change with regards to the investigation. And actually, it caused all the involved parties to dig their heels in further. Hezbollah and Amal are insisting that the port investigation be closed entirely. And they've threatened to pull out of the Makati government if that's not done. And if they actually do pull out, we could see the collapse of the Makati government, which, as you know, Hugo, Lebanon waited over a year for. Now, on the other side, parties like the Lebanese forces and the Free Patriotic Movement still support Judge Tariq Bittar. So while we're not seeing anything new in terms of positions, what's happening is that everyone involved is upping the ante. Hezbollah and their allies are threatening to collapse the government over the investigation. And the message some people took from last week's clashes is that you can either have stability with no justice, or you can have justice with no stability. Meanwhile, Judge Bittar remains undeterred, and has actually issued renewed summons for officials after the clashes.
1: Thanks for joining us, Will.
4: Thanks for having me.
1: For more of Will's coverage and analysis of the clashes in Beirut, head over to the New Arabs' website. October 20th, 2011. Colonel Murmar Gaddafi of Libya is found hiding in a drainage tunnel by rebels. Mobile phone footage of the event shows a dishevelled and bleeding man begging for mercy. Reports about what happened next differ, but the result was the same. The man who had led Libya since 1969 was dead, killed by his fellow countrymen who had risen up in defiance of his rule just eight months earlier as part of the Arab Spring. Gaddafi's death marked the end of part of Libya's history and the start of a new period. In the years that followed, the country was ravaged by a conflict that killed over 10,000 people and split the country in two. A UN-backed government in the western city of Tripoli, supported by Turkey, and the Libyan National Army in the eastern city of Benghazi, led by Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar, whose most active backers are Russia and the UAE. But then, in October last year, a permanent ceasefire agreement was reached and a chance for peace presented itself. In March of this year, an interim unity government was formed, and elections were scheduled for December 24th. But questions remain. What does the future hold for Libya? Will a stable government be formed? And will the foreign forces that flooded the country ever leave?
2: So that early progress came really to a head in March 2021. But since then, we've seen stalling on all sides.
1: This is Anas El-Gamati, director of the Sadak Institute, a public policy think tank based in Libya.
2: That Libya has a history, especially in these transitional periods, of what they call the status quo in Libya, trying to stall the next step of the transition. And that's for quite obvious reasons. People that that find themselves in executive power tend
1: not to want to give that position up. This intransigence, with a healthy sprinkling of greed, has thrown December's planned elections into serious doubt. But there are more fundamental issues surrounding the elections. For example, if a president is elected, then what are they becoming president of? And what would be their role?
2: Calling for elections right now in the current context means that we may have a new president without a constitutional basis because we haven't solved that problem. Libya doesn't have a, a firm constitution or an understanding of what kind of powers would be given to a new president in a country with a tradition for people not letting go of power, like Muhammad al gaddafi who stuck around 42 years. And then you would have a new parliament. But aside from that, you'd still have an executive branch that operates within a fractured state, and a fractured state that is very crucially in one specific aspect,
1: the military. One key military figure in the country is Khalifa Haftar, leader in the east and seen by many as the instigator of civil war in Libya. In 2019, he declared war on the UN-backed government in Tripoli. Ultimately, he failed in his expedition, but remains a strong individual. Even today, Haftar controls much of southern and eastern Libya. But the general is also a proponent of December's elections, which he is expected to be running in.
2: If he wins and he becomes Libya's next president, then he doesn't really have any kind of powers to constrain him or a constitution to to constrain him. And that's only if he wins. Now, polling has shown that he's only polling at anywhere between 20 and 24%. So that doesn't really give you an, an indication that he might win. But what the reality is, it doesn't really matter if he wins or not. If he loses, he goes right back to the military track of the Berlin process, he stalls the state-building process and he can negotiate with one opponent, not the government of national unity, not rival parliaments, but one single president. And, and there is also the possibility that a president that is amicable to Haftar is elected.
1: Such a potential outcome has made the issue of elections highly controversial. So, with a chance for a less-than-ideal outcome, why have elections at all? Why not wait? The short answer is that Libya is in desperate need of an individual to take leadership and address the serious issues affecting the country's citizens.
2: Services like water, electricity, energy, petrol at the pump, getting cash out of banks, these things are beyond a the crisis They're a structural crisis that an election won't solve overnight. But for many Libyans who want those issues solved... The idea that candidates are coming out and saying, if you elect me or vote for me, that's a vote for, you know, a new road or, or you know, working electricity. And in fact, the government of National Unity's uh, Prime Minister, Abdelhamid Dubeba, who polled recently at 68 percent in a recent poll, um, has done so on the back of, of solving the electricity crisis. Those things shouldn't be glossed over. Those are really meaningful uh, things that need to be changed
1: and can be changed. All important issues affecting the lives of Libyans and inhibiting growth. Particularly economic growth over the past decade, the Libyan dinar has been devalued by three hundred and fifty per cent. There's one further reason why elections should be held in Libya after ten years of upheaval, which was preceded by autocratic rule. The Libyan people are entitled to fair representation then you have a
2: you know a really difficult question on your hands because. You have to call for elections at some stage. Libya is in a crisis of legitimacy. But equally, Libyans need to be able to go through a process that is fair, free, has some integrity and is part of a democratic process with a democratic outcome. The question today is, if we go to elections too early, will it spark conflict? If we don't go to elections, could it also spark conflict?
1: For Libyans in the country, the stakes couldn't be higher. And for those outside the country, Libya is also a tantalising prospect. Situated on the southern tip of Europe and the northern tip of Africa with a gateway to the sub sahara region and its part of the Middle East with good prospects for energy production, Libya is almost a complete package for a foreign power that is looking to spread control and influence beyond its borders. And furthermore, according to Anas, for a foreign nation, it's looking ripe.
2: In Libya, Libya is still pretty much the only country in the Middle East and North Africa that is almost like has an ideological vacuum. It's a, it's a blank slate.
1: If Libya goes to the polls and if a president is elected, then that president will likely have to make a very difficult choice. But a choice that will likely set the future of the country.
2: I think that the one thing that a president in Libya will do is firmly shift Libya's axis towards either Ankara or Abu Dhabi, and I think there is prime reason for those things. Militarily speaking, both countries have moved significantly away from what their medium power reputation gave them only a decade ago, to be, to swinging like superpowers in Libya. And I think that's a really important um, uh, difference because in the era of um, American retrenchment and and distancing itself from the Middle East, they're handing over the the region, handing over North Africa and and Libya in particular to, to, you know, whichever medium power can swing and swing hard enough.
1: If it is going to be a choice between Turkey and the UAE, what separates them? Certainly their political culture. Turkey
2: today is is not only a product of its leader, President Erdogan, but it's also a product of over 60 years of attempted and successful military coups. And there is broad respect for the idea of civilian government and a broad rejection of military interference in in political life and and a broadly accepted amongst all political parties the idea that a military should be subservient to an elected authority. But in terms of political culture, a country like the UAE and Egypt major, major powers in the Middle East and North Africa also want to see Libya being led either by a military figure or having a military that is not subservient to elected political rule. And that's, I think that question will have will have to be answered by Libya's next president. They'll either shift their access towards Ankara
1: or towards Abu Dhabi. If such a choice, one way or another, is made, the country and its hypothetical leader will then have another and perhaps even more pernicious issue to deal with?
2: I do agree to some extent that internationals are calling for elections as a panacea because they believe that it, it can fix all the problems. But let's also be clear that Libya's problems and Libyan's problems are not necessarily the problems of the international community and leading members of them. And I think it calls into the question the elephant in the room which has been the delivery of mercenaries over the last several years in Libya and especially mercenaries of a certain ilk and a certain kind, namely the Wagner
1: Group. While there are numerous foreign forces active in Libya, the Wagner Group have elicited more speculation and intrigue than the rest. Founded in 2014 by Putin linked businessman Yevgeny Prigozhin and former intelligence officer Dmitry Yutkin, Wagner have operated in a number of theatres around the world, including Libya. Although in Libya, they did arrive fashionably late.
5: So, starting in. Late 2014, uh, you already had a flow of weapons that was in violation of the arms embargo orchestrated by Kremlin-linked companies and entities. And, you know, you had spies already like preparing the groundwork for mercenary presence.
1: This is Jalal Hashawi, a senior fellow specialising in Libya with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Shalal has been studying the Russian involvement in Libya from their very first moves in the country.
5: And then you have another moment, which is um, October 2018. October 2018, after several months of preparation, Wagner starts popping up.
1: Without an official deployment of Russian troops on the ground, the Wagner group have served as surrogate. Although any attempt to ask the Kremlin what Wagner were doing for them in Libya would likely result in stony Russian faces and blanket denials.
5: No Russian official or no Russian analyst that has any kind of you know, loyalty or sympathy to the state will ever acknowledge that what Wagner does fits within the strategic framework of the Russian state.
1: The Russian state has never acknowledged any coordination with Wagner, and Russian law outlaws private military companies and mercenary groups. But any real suggestion that Wagner operates independently would ignore some pretty damning evidence.
5: For example, during the war in 2020, there were dozens and dozens of uh, military flights, you know, using planes that belonged to the Ministry of Defence, landing in Libya almost on a daily basis for the purpose of supporting Wagner. So just looking at those flights, you can actually assert quite authoritatively that the Russian state and Wagner work hand in hand. It's absurd to even, you know, allude to the fact that there's maybe some doubt. There's no doubt.
1: So why all the shoulder shrugging and blank faces? You could say it's an attempt at some form of plausible deniability. But in truth, it goes much further than that. It's a calculated strategy.
5: I mean, if there was any acknowledgement on the part of the Russian state that there's actually a link and coordination between the two, then, then Wagner would become much less useful. What makes it so attractive to the Russian state is the fact that you have this level of confusion.
1: By denying any links with Wagner, regardless of the evidence presented, in Libya, Russia has been able to contort its position to suit any situation or scenario.
5: So the, the blurriness of it is actually by design, and it offers the possibility for Russia to come across as more reasonable, more preoccupied with peace. It allows you to keep talking as a, and, and project yourself as a reasonable party to the very people that you're that your snipers are killing and that your um, your own mercenaries are are actually uh, massacring in terms of civilian deaths caused caused by uh, anti-personal mines and booby traps.
1: Such doublespeak has been much of Russia's story in Libya. As a late joiner, it was able to sit back and watch the opening acts before entering the fray and exploiting the weaknesses it had identified in the other player's. To an almost frightening level of effectiveness. Putin's campaign in Libya is one piece of his ambition to enter the Middle East and North Africa as a dominant force, an ambition which Jalal says he's held for many years.
5: As early as 2005, you could see that he saw the dysfunction of the Middle East as an opportunity. But that opportunity would disappear if Russia were to have friends and enemies so what he decided to kind of commit to is always keep options open you never make enemies and never have any kind of rancor or grudges or and don't don't choose sides and to this day uh, you you see you know um, russia making a point of, of talking to saudi arabia and iran at the same time knowing f- full well that those two are mortal enemies and that's the specialty of russia is to keep as a strength this ability to never go ideological, you know, never have any kind of hatred or love for anybody. And that, that of course, applies completely in, in Libya. So
1: This strategy, with regards to Libya, has perhaps been seen best in its relationship with Turkey. Turkey and Russia have been supporting opposing sides in the conflict, And while there have been some disagreements between the two countries, relations have never broken down entirely. In 2017, Russia sold sophisticated air defence systems to Turkey. In August of this year, it was reported that the sale of further systems was underway. By Jalal's estimate, such a sort of friendship with Turkey is less to do with Turkey, but more to do with Turkey's NATO counterparts.
5: And the ideology on the part of Russia is is a desire to undermine the cohesion between Western states. For example, make sure that NATO becomes more and more bogged down in its own internal disputes. That's one of the reasons Russia will never burn bridges with Turkey or at least it will try not to burn bridges with Turkey and it's certainly not trying to peel Turkey away from NATO as some people say. It wants Turkey to stay in NATO and stay a problem within NATO.
1: Russia has extended this particular brand of cynicism to domestic Libya as well through its relationship with Field Marshal Khalifa Haftar. It's often been commented that Haftar is Russia's man in Libya. That might be what Haftar thinks, or probably thought at one time, but the picture of previous years points more to a puppet. Used when he's useful, discarded when he's not, or manipulated when he has overly ambitious plans, such as Haftar's failed 2019 assault on Tripoli when the Wagner Group's most visible combat role occurred. They popped up
5: as a combat force, On the front line of Tripoli in early September 2019, if you uh, rewind by a couple of weeks, you'll see a Haftar that is on the brink of collapse in August 2019. So what we are going to do effectively is wait for the moments of weakness, show up as a last minute rescue like a, a knight in in shining armor and then become more vital and then more vital. And once we have become vital, then we're not going to listen to Haftar. We're not going to listen to the Emirates. We're just going to listen to ourselves, to the Kremlin. And, and they would not be able to say no, because guess what? We are indispensable, to, you know, from their perspective. So, And that's basically the philosophy.
1: Today, Russia is in Libya. They have a general who owes them a degree of debt, but for whom they have no real respect, and a brutal fighting force to which they can give orders without any accountability if the results end up in the deaths of innocent civilians. So our final question, will Russia and its foreign mercenaries leave Libya? What do you think? Jalal Hashawi again.
5: If whatever emerges in Tripoli over the next several months is kind of a little bit more democratic, a little bit less democratic, who cares, right? What Russia knows is that Libyan elites are by and large corrupt. They are by and large big fans of opacity. They have to reconstruct their country. There's still a lot of oil and gas contracts that need to be snatched up. So uh, Russia looks at this and says, you know, there's still economic rewards to be reaped. So I'll stick around, and I'm not going to, you know, wake up at night and think about how democratic or not democratic the, the the whatever setup is. I mean, those people are corrupt, so I can I can get along with them, and they will they will do business with me, and and if they don't, I will I will scare the living daylights out of me.
1: removing the autocratic Gaddafi from office was a monumental step for Libya, but it was just the first step in a journey that could take many more years to complete. Final words to Anas al
2: You know, Libya is at the source of, of many disputes, not always of its own making and its own machinations and its own designs, but the designs of others. And I think an, an elected president is not going to solve that overnight. And I think that's something that Libya will have to work for years to inoculate and immunise itself from those interests.
0: Refugee camps are built to be demolished, never to last, with no future and no past. Rarely are they exhibited, celebrated and defended as a site of cultural heritage. Until now.
3: It's beautiful, yeah. and that's... So the more I look at these photos, the more I realise it's very clear why. why this happened.
0: The Mosaic Rooms in West London is hosting a three-room exhibition centred on the Dehesha refugee camp in Palestine. Dehesha is a camp near Bethlehem. It became a shelter for Palestinians from over 44 villages forced out of their homes after the creation of the Israeli state in 1948. Over 70 years later, residents have been unable to return to their villages. New generations have only ever known the camp, which, over time morphed into an amalgamation of Palestinian dialects and communities. Created by Sandy Halal and Alessandro Petty from the Decolonise Architecture Art Research, known as DAR, the exhibition examines the architecture, social fabric and culture of Tehesha. It seeks to challenge mainstream narratives about refugee experiences, humanitarian crises, victimhood and suffering.
6: I think our intention was obviously just to raise some of these really kind of important and pertinent discussions at this time. I mean. This
0: is Rachel Jarvis, director and head curator of the Mosaic Rooms.
6: The issues around um, Palestinian, Palestinian experience and in terms of those who have been in these refugee camps for, for this period of time, you know, this is, I think for a lot of people, they're not aware that refugee camps aren't just. A thing that happens for a few years. The refugee camp Dehesia is one of the oldest ones in the world. It's been
0: I asked Rachel what they wanted people to experience when stepping into the exhibition.
6: I mean, I think both of the exhibition rooms are very atmospheric and I think it's really amazing the way that Sandy and Alessandro kind of visualise very powerfully and resonantly kind of works which are the result of a kind of a long-term kind of process of participation and collaboration with residents in places and with communities. So hopefully this gives them a way to kind of reflect on that and engage in whether their own experiences or other experiences or things that they're reading about in the news and put some sort of kind of personal perspective on it.
0: The first room of the exhibition is a series of light boxes showing pictures of the camp's architecture. They are taken by Luca Capuano, who previously photographed UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Italy. Taken at night, the buildings are spotlighted by a bright light. Many are covered in graffiti. There are no people in the images.
4: I think the
6: light box just brought so much life to the pictures.
0: This is Celine, an architecture student from Turkey. I spoke to her about the exhibition's first room on opening night.
6: Because even these small windows that you see, so you would have in the main uh, picture, but then on the sides to see the small squares of inside the houses with this very warm light. And with the light box, it was like so heartwarming as if it was this kind of warm fireplace that you want to get into. Seeing ordinary life in this space and and it's nice with the prompt it says to look out for like flower pots and street. Art. This
0: is another visitor at the exhibition from a refugee youth organization who I spoke to on opening night.
6: So you know you're kind of looking at it as a community which is nice to see. And I didn't know about this place. So it's really interesting to hear about it.
0: The second room, downstairs, contains photo books of the 44 villages of origin of Dahisha refugee camp's residents. Each book has a map of where the village was located in relation to the camp. Many of the photographed villages have been completely demolished, leaving no buildings, just land and rubble.
6: Then moving downstairs is quite what followed that and what Kind of is the reality, and why we see these pictures upstairs is because all these villages have been destroyed.
0: Celine again,
6: and seeing that data shit is quite intense.
0: The second room, according to the exhibition's creators, is supposed to take you on a journey of return. On a looped soundtrack, a woman lists the names of the villages and gives context to why hundreds of Palestinians were forced from their homes. The photo books are placed on plinths of different sizes. Visitors can kneel down and flip through each page.
3: I like the downstairs room where you see the villages.
0: This is Omar Himdat, who grew up near Dehaysha. He has worked as a community organiser and social worker at the refugee camp
3: and pictures of the villages. I think that really uh, is one of the, to me, is, is a very important part of the project.
0: I got the opportunity to speak with Omar in the exhibition's third room, known as the living room. Because
3: it's not about the refugee camp itself. The refugee camp, the history of the refugee camp is deeply rooted in the history of the villages. So I really like the way in which these pictures, you know, depict... You know, a, a little bit of of the uh, of the land, right? Mm. Most of them, I would say. Uh, and it's good to connect as well and to build this connection yeah. with the history of the refugee camp to the history of these.
0: Do you ever uh, like looking through them, just because these used to be villages and now they're? It is the beautiful yeah. nature, but
3: it's yeah. beautiful, and that's. So the more I look at these photos, the more I realise, yeah, there is no... It's, it's very clear why why this happened.
0: The living room will be hosted by Omar every Sunday, providing a chance for people to ask questions about life at the camp.
3: So the narrative of, of uh, the, the typical sort of image about refugees being victims, being, you know, their life is mainly suffer and mainly misery. And it's about uh, survival only is, uh, proves to be false. Like when, when we see and learn more about the sort of history and social and political one of the Asia, for example.
0: In the living room is a dossier created by da for the nomination to register the camp as a world heritage site I asked Omar about this nomination and its significance
3: so the refugees are afraid that this would undermine the right of the term, right and would bring the status of permanency right to the camps but then it, it of course the it would bring up the conversation onto a different level yeah. about refugee camps and therefore it might serve plus refugees uh, and bring actually the question of refugees in general, Palestinian refugees, Mm. again into the political sort of discussion. And that's, to me, very important.
0: The nomination is intended to provoke, exposing how definitions of heritage are not universal, but subjected to the control of the nation-state with colonial foundations. It aims to get people to think more deeply about how architecture represents political transformation and prompts questions surrounding notions of history, and what home means for refugees.
3: I think one of the core questions that this project asks is what happens after Palestinian uh, return? What will happen to the camps, right? Mm. Uh, because if you walk in the camp and you ask people, you'll have all the different opinions, right? Somebody says, I grew up here and my life is here. Yeah. I do not want to return there, but mm-hmm. I want to have access to, yeah. to my homeland, right? Others would say I want to actually demolish it Mm -hmm. Uh, one block
0: after another. If you would like to visit this exhibition at the Mosaic Rooms, it is on Tuesday to Sunday from 11am to 6pm from October to January 30th, 2022.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of The New Arab Voice. It was produced by myself and Rosie McCabe with additional help from Will Christou. Our theme music was by Omar Al phil The New Arab Voice will be back in two weeks' time. Until then, you can find all our previous episodes on all major podcast platforms. You can also check out our new Instagram page for additional content. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram for all the latest news from the region.